I hope that you will join me with an open Bible as we look together at 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 14. As we come to this scripture, we're doing so in the midst of 2020, and we're doing so in the midst of homecoming, a homecoming like no other, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm feeling surrounded these days. I'm feeling like everywhere I turn, there is some form of adversity, some form of turmoil, and it's 360 degrees, and it's even affected homecoming at Tabernacle, an occasion we all look forward to and enjoy celebrating every year together. And obviously, that's not the case this year. But as if a pandemic were not enough on one side, then we have this election coming up. And as if those two things weren't enough, we have natural disasters, we have hurricanes, we have forest fires, we have economic hardship. And all of that is on top of whatever personal issues or challenges you're facing in your life right now. We feel surrounded. And we may wonder, do we have anything at all to celebrate today and this homecoming day? Do we have anything to celebrate? Well, we're in good company because this is exactly where the people of Israel were at this time in 2 Samuel. Everywhere around them, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, they were surrounded 360 degrees by enemies, by hostile nations who would love nothing more than to eradicate them and take over their land. That's exactly where Israel is at this point in 2 Samuel. But what God did for Israel through his, peop- through his king David, he can do for us today. But we need to remember this truth. Adversity may surround us, but there is nothing that can stop God's promises from propelling his people toward total victory. 360 degree victory. That's what we see God doing through his king among his people in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And he can do the same thing for Tabernacle Baptist Church of Raleigh. He can do the same thing in your life wherever you are. Let's look together then at verse 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Amma from the control of the Philistines. So our first movement is to the west, toward the Mediterranean Sea. And you don't need to be a Bible scholar to know that the Philistines have been a problem for God's people for a long time. Remember Goliath the giant, whom David killed with his slingshot? Well, he was a Philistine. And that incident that is so well known was merely one incident among many. This is a nation that has been abusing and has been taking advantage of Israel for a long time. You go back to the book of Judges, 
And it's one incident after another where the Philistines are abusing and taking advantage of God's people. And now we see how they are knocked out in one verse. One verse. One solitary verse. They are knocked out. And they are not knocked out entirely, but they will not be a threat for a long time to come. Long after David is dead and off the scene. And while the events described in this verse probably took longer than that, we're probably seeing a lengthy campaign condensed into one verse, it's still the case that the way the story is told is David defeated him. Bam! Just like that. And there's nothing more to it. And then we start going to the east in the next verse. So what changed? What changed after all this time when the Philistines have been harassing God's people, when they've even killed the king of Israel, Saul? What's different now? Did God give David reinforcements? Say, here are more men for you to go defeat your enemy, the Philistines. Does he give them a technological advantage? Does he give them a new strategy? Nope. It's none of those things. So what is it? It's simply this. That God made a promise. God made a promise. And we see this in 2 Samuel 7. When God says to David in verse 10, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." God made a promise. That promise propels David to victory over the Philistines. It's as simple as that. Nothing else is different about their circumstances. And David is aggressive in going west to attack them. And if you don't know where Methig Amma is, you're in good company because no one else seems to know that either. It seems to mean something like bridal, but we don't really know. If you look at the parallel account of this in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, it says that David took Gath, which makes a lot more sense because Gath was one of the chief cities of the Philistines. The point seems to be, though, that David came in and he cleaned house. He swept the floor with them. But look at the timing. In the course of time, or literally after this, after God's promise, it hinges right after God has promised and David has said, your will be done. God, your plans are better than mine. Yes, yes. And then that propels him into battle. And here's what you need to know for your life right now. Looking to the West, we can be assured of God's timing. Be assured of God's 
timing. God's timing is perfect. Why now? Well, in hindsight, we can look back and see how God, apparently through this portion of 2 Samuel, has been holding back the Philistines while Israel is in the midst of a civil war. Because remember, after Saul is killed, there's this contest over the throne between David and between Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And it's brutal, and it's bloody. And it would have been a perfect time for an enemy like the Philistines to swoop in and take advantage of the situation. And yet God, mysteriously and secretly, has been holding back the enemies of his people until now. Now he has his king established on the throne of his people, he has made sovereign promises to his king to make a dynasty out of David's house, and now he is propelling his king, David, into battle against their enemies. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. And if I were with you in person right now, I'm sure we could go around and you could share times where you look back over your life and you see how things worked out. Not randomly, but because of God's providence. God was in that, and I can see that clearly now, but when I was in the middle of it, I thought God was completely absent. And I pray that one day when you and when our church looks back over this season, that we will see an abundance of ways in which God was showing up and doing mighty things. We see some now, to be sure, but I pray that in the course of time, we can look back and and give thanks to God and praise his holy name for what he was doing in us and through us during a very trying season. But that starts by being assured of his timing. The other principle we need to apply here is that God wants his people to be aggressive against the enemy. Be aggressive against the enemy. David didn't wait. In the course of time, after this, he goes with the assurance of God's promise. He takes the fight to the enemy. He goes. And he meets with success as enabled by God. And the enemies that we face are not flesh and blood. We may think so. We may think the person who votes differently than we do is the enemy, but they're really not. The New Testament helps us understand that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and against the powers, against spiritual forces that can inflict far more damage on a human life than the Philistines ever possibly could. And we need to be aggressive. We need to be proactive against those enemies. And those enemies take advantage of things like discouragement, doubt, anxiety, worry, feeling helpless, thinking that God is absent, thinking that there's nothing good going on in your life right now, thinking that the work of our church is at a standstill because we're not able to meet in person as we would like. The enemy wants to use those tactics because Satan, our ultimate enemy, knows that if he can get you discouraged, 
If he can get you disappointed, then you're out of the fight. And you're no threat to his purposes. But when we're aggressive, and we realize that we do have enemies, and we have to be proactive against discouragement as individuals and as a church, we're going to pray against those things and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us as we face those enemies. And we're going to trust in God's timing so that no matter how much it looks like the enemy is winning, we know ultimately the enemy cannot triumph over God. No matter how surrounded we may feel, no matter how much it looks like we have enemies 360 degrees, we know there is a God who surrounds his people 360 degrees, and he will bring about a 360-degree victory for his people. He did it for his people then, and he will do it for his people now. Trust in his timing. Be aggressive against the enemy. Be persistent in prayer. Be persistent in sharing the name of Jesus wherever you can and however you can. Because I don't care how isolated you are in your life right now, you have some social connections. Maybe they're digital connections. Maybe it's a phone call. But there is someone in your life right now who needs to know about Jesus. They need to hear the name of Jesus spoken. They need to see the life of Jesus exuding from your life. And that is how we fight our battles by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. After going west to fight the Philistines, we see David turns east to fight the Moabites. Let's look at verse 2. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Who are the Moabites? This is a nation on the other side of the Jordan River to the east of Israel. They are descended from Abraham's nephew Lot. And they were also a a continual threat to the people of Israel. We're told in Judges 3 that they subjected and oppressed the people of Israel for 18 years. For 18 years. And so this is another enemy of God's people. And God's King David goes at them. And we have this atrocious and troubling scene where, having been defeated, then David seems to have so much control over the situation to have defeated them so badly that he can rather casually measure out every third. Two-thirds are put to the sword in punishment. One-third is shown mercy. What do we do with this? This should be offensive to you and to me. Because God takes no delight in the death of anyone. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Even the death of the wicked is not pleasing 
to God. He takes no joy in that, and neither should we. We don't ever take any joy or delight in the death of a human being. But we can't stop there. We can't just read on. The New Testament tells us that all Scripture is breathed by God. It's all inspired by God, and therefore it is all useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. Our role is not to sit in judgment over Scripture. It's to learn from Scripture because the ultimate author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person who inspired human authors to write these things down. And so we need to learn. We need to learn. And what we need to learn is that this is a warning for you and for me that no one, no one can escape God's judgment forever. The Moabites had been afflicting God's people for 18 years at least and probably thought they were going to get away with it. But in the course of time, in the fullness of time, God executes judgment upon them for what they have done to his people. God is a God who is righteous, who is holy, and who does judge. And it took the form of executing judgment through his king, David. Now, someone says, well, okay, but isn't that like the Old Testament God, and he's mean and judgmental, but Jesus came and Jesus showed us that God is love, and so we're Jesus people, and so we don't really follow this part of the Bible. We've got to get rid of that stereotype. Because if that's your view of Jesus, you haven't really engaged with the Jesus of the New Testament. You're gleaning that from somebody else's caricature. That's not really the Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament is a Savior who came to the world to offer God's forgiveness to sinners like you and like me, people who are fully deserving of God's judgment upon our sins. Jesus came not to condemn us, we're already condemned as it is, but to save us, to save us from our sins. And he went to the cross to prove that, and God raised him from the dead to prove that. But we can't stop with that affirmation. The story of Jesus doesn't stop with his resurrection, and it's all happily ever after. The claim of Jesus and of his followers in the New Testament is that he will come back. And when he comes back, it will not be to pat you on the back and say, good job. It will be for judgment. It will be to gather his people, those who have trusted in him, those who have committed their lives to him, and it will be to execute judgment upon those who have rejected him. We can see this in Jesus' own words. As Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of 
teeth. The difference between David and Jesus is not that they judge. Both execute God's judgment. The difference between David and Jesus is that with David, his judgment is arbitrary. It's eeny, miny, mo. A third is saved, two-thirds executed. Jesus' judgment at the end will not be like that. It is separating the wicked from the righteous. And how do we know the difference? Paul tells us this in Romans 2, that when God is withholding judgment right now, because many will say, okay, where is this judgment? I don't see any fire coming down from the sky. Remember, God's wrath right now takes the form of letting people do what they want to do. You want to live for yourself? Here. He lets you. But his patience will come to an end. Listen to what we read in Romans 2 verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So be warned. Be warned. This is a tough scripture. And, and again, we don't delight in this, but it's the truth. It's the truth as revealed by Jesus, our Savior. We can't overlook this. We can't ignore this. We can't say, oh, Jesus, he didn't really mean that. Don't worry. Don't worry. You're good. If I didn't tell you the truth, then I don't really love you. If I love you, I must tell you the truth about who God is and what God has to say to you. My conscience will not allow me to do otherwise. So be warned that this is what we all deserve. This is what we all deserve, is God's judgment. Consider what David says in Psalm 60. The the people of God, listen to what they say. In Psalm 60, verse 1, You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. Anybody feel that way about 2020? I do. But for those who fear you, who, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. God, David's saying, we are no more deserving of your mercy. We are no more deserving of your help against the enemy than any other nation. We can't take any credit for that. We don't merit that. We haven't deserved any of that. Our only hope is your promise. That's it. It's not in me. It's not in you. It's your promise. And we claim your promise. We cling to your promise that no matter how surrounded we feel, nothing can stop God's promise from propelling his people, toward total victory. Be warned. Know the nature of God's judgment against your sin. And be patient. 
Be patient. Where you look in the world and it seems like there is no justice. It seems like there is no righteousness. And you're thinking, why is it that this person seems to be prospering? Why is it that this person seems to be suffering? What is happening? Be patient. Be patient. Pray to God. Pray for help. Pray for understanding. Pray for guidance. But ultimately, ultimately, surrender your heart with the conviction that God's plans, God's ways, God's purposes are better than ours. And God in his own time and in his own way will bring righteousness throughout this world. Believe that. Cling to that. But next we move on to even more powerful nations when we come to verse 3. We're heading north now. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Tabah and Barathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When two king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. When we venture to the north, we are venturing into the territory of nations that are far more powerful than anything Israel is dealing with, the Philistines and the Moabites. These are the Arameans. And one day, Israel will be completely defeated by them when they have the Assyrian Empire. But look at how they are knocked out just as easily as God knocked out the Philistines and the Moabites. It's the same thing. They have numerical advantages. They have technological advantages. There are more of them, and they have chariots. And yet, David defeats them by God's power. And so what you need to remember here is we need to be assured of God's judgment. We need to be assured of God's timing. And we need to be assured of God's ability God's ability. God puts human pride to shame. The things that we think are most important, the things that we think offer us the most security and protection, the things that we put stock in, that we invest in, that we put our time into, God puts those things to shame as he did here. And again, we may think, well, this is cruel what David does to these horses to hamstring them. And we don't know exactly what this entailed. Probably it means slowing them down so they are no longer useful in battle, rendering them useless 
as war horses, but still useful as workhorses. The point is that these are the things that people took all kinds of pride in. This is their glory. And it comes to nothing. Again, recalling this very incident, we read in Psalm 60, verse 8, Moab is my wash basin. On Edom, I toss my sandal. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. They're nothing compared to God's ability and God's power. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God? You who have now rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy. And don't miss this. For human help is worthless. It is vain. The things that humans pride themselves in, the things that we put so much stock in, God brings them to nothing. God chooses the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things in this world to shame the strong. Why? Well, because God has chosen to do that, but also because who gets the glory? God. God. Verse 12, with God, we will gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. And the writer of 2 Samuel is very clear about this as you read in verse 6 at the end. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Literally, the Lord saved David. David can't take any credit for this. He's not doing this because he has better technology, better numbers. It's none of that. What is it? God's promise, right? God's promise propels him toward total victory against the enemy. 360 degree victory. And it's the same truth we see reflected in the prayer of Hannah. All the way back at the very beginning of 1 Samuel 2 where she says in verse 9, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That is exactly what we see playing out here in 2 Samuel 8. So, in your life right now, are you relying on God's ability Are the plans that you make for your family, for your career, for your life as an individual, are the plans we make as a church, how much are we relying on God's ability? How much are we looking for God to show up? How much are we thinking, well, we'll only be successful if we have the perfect plan, if we have all the right resources, if we have the perfect staff, if I say the perfect thing, right? That's not the measure of success. If we are successful, if God gives us victory, it will be his doing. Can you rejoice in that truth today? I rejoice in that truth every time I stand behind the word of God and I proclaim what God has said. God, if, if there is any success in this message, it will be your doing. It won't be my creativity. It won't be my insight. It won't be my wisdom. I would have run out of things a long time ago to say. But because of your word, because God is faithful, because God equips, then I trust in his ability. And I'm assured of that. And you can be assured of that in your life. Don't trust in the things of this world. Don't trust in any human leader. Don't trust in any 
human invention. Trust in the God who is able. May that be true of you as an individual. May it be true of Tabernacle Baptist Church as we move into our 147th year. Now, having gone north, we turn south in verse 11. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. He comes now to the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Jacob and Esau, the brothers the sons of Isaac, the Edomites are descended from Esau. And here also we see God defeating them through his king, King David. God was the source of David's victory. And we see this repeated again in verse 14. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Notice how the Holy Spirit is emphasizing that. If you don't see anything else in these verses, remember, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. This isn't about lionizing David. This isn't about creating a hero out of David. This is about the Lord and what he can do in and through his people. And so for you and for me right now, be assured of God's victory. Be assured of God's victory. Be assured of God's timing, his judgment, his ability, and be assured of God's victory. Notice how David acknowledges God as the source of this in verse 11. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord. He dedicated these articles to the Lord. This isn't about David accumulating more wealth for himself. He dedicates it to the Lord which in turn will be used eventually to construct the temple built by David's son, Solomon. But David is acknowledging, this isn't my doing, this isn't my win, this isn't my victory, this is God's doing. And so whatever plunder, whatever I have, I have received as a result of what God has been doing in me and through me as I am propelled by his promises to me, it's all God's. It's all God's. It's his victory. Because it's all because of his promise. David is famous because God told him, I will make a great name out of you. Names like the greatest people in history. We're still talking about David right now because God fulfilled his promise to him. And so if you and, and, and if we as a church are to know total victory, 360 degree victory, especially when We feel like we're surrounded 360 degrees by adversity. That starts by saying to God, God, this isn't about me. This is about you. This isn't about what 
I can do in my life. This isn't about what I can do for you. This is about you and what you can and what you will do in and through your people. And praise be to God that from where we stand right now, as individuals and as a church, this homecoming, we can read this text and be so encouraged by what God is capable of doing. But be even more encouraged by the assurance that God, through his son Jesus Christ, David's greatest descendant, God has brought about the ultimate victory for sinners like you and like me. So that our conquering is greater than anything that David ever did. And it's not because of anything we have done, not because of anything we have said. And we see it in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Tabernacle, if God is for us, if God is for his people, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It is God who declares righteous. Not me, not you. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Literally, we are super conquerors. Because of something we did? No, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you haven't done, this promise can be true for you in your life right now. And if it is true of you that you have known the love of God and you believe that God has proven his love for you by sending his son, Jesus, he did not spare his own son for sinners like you and like me that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus right now at this very moment is interceding for us. Well, you're a conqueror. More than that, you're a super conqueror. 360 degrees. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you know Christ Jesus as Lord. Because it's not that we're spared from these things, right? There will be adversity. There will be trouble. There will be hardship. Both for you as an individual and for us as a church, there will be all kinds of challenges ahead. But nothing and no one can separate 
the love of Christ from His people. Are you among those people? Is this your victory? Are you a part of this win? You can be. You can be right now. It starts with confessing, Jesus, you are Lord. I don't want to achieve something for myself. I don't want to win something for my life or for my family. God, I want you to triumph in me and through me, starting with my heart. My heart that is so wayward from you. My heart that, that pursues things and wants things and, and desires things and, and chases after things and loves things other than you. God, I surrender starting with my heart. Is that you right now? Then be assured, God loves you and there is nothing and there is no one in all of creation that can take that away. No matter how surrounded you feel, there is nothing that can take that love from you. Be assured of that as we go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we praise you as a promise-keeping God. We praise you that you are as good as your word. We praise you that even when everything around us feels like it's falling apart, even when everything around us doesn't make sense and is chaotic, we have your word. And your word, your promises, they are sufficient Lord, may we claim them. May we stand upon them, believing wholeheartedly that they are sufficient. They are sufficient for us now, and they will be sufficient for us into eternity. And I pray for our church, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to strengthen this body of believers, that you would continue to work in mighty ways as you have been, for 146 years, that you would continue to do that until Christ returns or calls us home. Lord, we put all of our trust, we put all of our confidence in you because you are our righteousness. You are our hope. And we pray all these things in the sovereign and loving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gives us the victory. Amen. We are so glad that you could join us for this special homecoming service. We pray that it's been a blessing and an encouragement to you and your family. If you have any ministry needs or questions, be sure to reach out by email. Have a wonderful week.